sermon text is Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for having us in this passage. We pray as we go through this this rich passage that we would see what you have for us. As there are so many things in here to glean, to go through, we pray that we would be attentive, our hearts would be opened, to hear where we fail you, where we need to be stirred up more and to do more for your kingdom. We thank you for assembling us and gathering us here today. We pray as you preach, or as Mr. Horn preaches, you'd give him the strength that he needs to proclaim your truth. And we pray that we would um, take these words seriously. In Christ's name, amen. So as we, we continue in Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews has been saying it's obvious. It's obvious because they had to keep doing it. It's obvious because the high priest couldn't stay in the holiest. He couldn't stay in the holy of holies. He couldn't stand in the presence of God without having a, a plume of incense so that his, the mercy seat was covered. Or he would die. It's easy to understand how the blood of bulls and goats does not take away sin. But today's passage, this week's passage, is about what the implications are that the blood of Jesus Christ does take away sin. It's easy to think about in some abstract way. Meaning that we can say how effective it is. We can say that the new covenant is better. We can say that We don't need to make any offerings that the sacrificial system is complete. But often we don't turn around and say, no, Christ took away sins. That means that the the standard for a believer in Christ is much higher than the standard for the believer in the Old Testament. Because Jesus Christ came to take away sins. He came and he was successful. His blood is not like the blood of bulls and goats. He doesn't leave us where we are. That's what the blood of bulls and goats does. When he shed his blood, it will take away sin. It is powerful. It is life-changing. So often we say, oh yeah, it's effective. You're cleansed by the blood of Jesus. And then the people in the church continue to act exactly the same way. They act as if they haven't changed. They profess with their lips that the blood of Jesus Christ is effective but their lives testify they don't believe it. So the writer of of Hebrews is going, that's not what it means. That's not what it means that Jesus Christ, His blood is effective to take away sins. He started by saying, look, it's effectual. You should be teachers by now. If you're actually saved and you're hearing the Word of God, you'll mature. Now he talks about other things. He's very clearly drawing out the implication 
of the idea that Christ's sacrifice was effectual. Because his sacrifice was effectual, because his sacrifice does take away sins, his people will be holy. Believers will be sanctified. Not might be, they will be. Otherwise, you're treating the sacrifice of Christ the same way as the sacrifice of a bull. You're treating his blood as having no more power than the blood of a bull. Jesus Christ came to take away sin. And he effectively does that in the life of every believer. He made a way and a means so that we can eternally be a holy people. But right now, we're supposed to be boldly drawing near. We're supposed to be boldly going into the holiest. We're supposed to be boldly walking in holiness so that we can draw near to God. Christ's sacrifice was effectual. We have a heart that's sprinkled. We have an evil conscience that that is is being cleansed. His blood was sprinkled. Remember that picture of it being sprinkled, that every sin offering, they would sprinkle it in a circle around the altar. And you were on one side or the other. You were on the side where you were damned to eternity. You were with the altar burnt offering. Or the other side, you were where the tabernacle was. Christ came and his blood was sprinkled. So you're on one side or the other. You're either being made holy, your conscience is being cleansed, your clothes, your garments, your works are being washed, or you're on the wrong side. His sprinkling matters. Christ's sacrifice is effectual, so our evil consciences are changed so that we understand what sin is. That's why he writes it on our hearts and our minds. We understand what sin is, and then our deeds, our actions, our clothes are washed with pure water. If it was like bulls and goats, they end up splattered with blood, but they still had to go wash, but it was just a picture, because they turned around and they continued to do the same sins. Look at the Pharisees, where Jesus Christ says to them, you hypocrites. In this passage, God is saying, If you believe that Christ's sacrifice is effectual, you won't be hypocrites. You will be holy. You won't be like the Pharisees. Because Christ's sacrifice is effectual, we can hold our confession of faith now. We can walk in accordance with what we believe. David Wright, we just sang from Psalm 119, he wrote about how much he loved God's law, but then he went and committed adultery and murder. But Jesus Christ came and his sacrifice was, his sacrifice was effectual so that, so that Paul can write that no murder will inherit the kingdom of God. Paul can write, no adulterer will inherit the kingdom of God. Once you're changed, once he writes his law on your heart and your mind, it won't happen. That's what it means that his sacrifice was effectual. It wasn't like the sacrifices of bulls and goats at the time of David. Christ's sacrifice means that we will be changed. 
the effect, effectiveness of the sacrifice of, chain, of Christ has a real effect on the expectations in the church. That's why we can call, we can provoke one another to love and good works because we go, Jesus Christ changed their conscience. He changed their understanding of what the right thing to do is so we can push one another. Because if we've been changed, we have a heart that will want to be pushed. We'll have a heart that wants to walk in righteousness. We have a heart that wants to see our sin. We have a heart that wants to be washed with, cold, with pure water. The Jews didn't want any of that. Christ came and did that very thing and they, they crucified him for that. They crucified him because he said, do not commit murder. But I say, do not be angry with your brother. They crucified him for it. Christ's sacrifice is effectual so we can provoke one another to love and good works. Because if they've been saved, the provoking will cause them to walk in greater righteousness. It will cause them to walk in greater holiness. It will cause them to draw near to God. It will cause them to hold their profession, their claim of having faith in Christ, that they'll hold it more dearly. They'll hold it more clearly. So we can have the boldness to provoke. All this flows from a trust in the effectual sacrifice of Christ do you believe it was effectual if you believe it was effectual real things have to happen in your life Jesus Christ came to destroy the works of the devil they're closer to their ultimate destruction the work of the de- works of the devil is closer to their ultimate destruction today than they were yesterday So equivalently, we should be increasing our exhortation. We should have an increasing expectation that Christ will continue to do greater and greater works among his people. The world, the world that we call the church, wants to go. We should have a a greater and greater expectation that, that nothing will happen, that things will get worse and worse. That's the opposite of what the writer of Hebrews is saying. If we believe that Christ's sacrifice was effectual, we should believe that we can exhort bolder and with more fervency as he cleanses the world, as he sanctifies his saints. We're not to let off, we're to increase. Most of these things are rejected in the modern church that the writer of Hebrews is saying. That these things should be expected If we don't expect these things, we make the new covenant exactly like the old covenant. As completely ineffectual, as completely unable to deal with sins, unable to take away sins. But that's not the new covenant. Jesus Christ came in the flesh so that those who are in the flesh, those who put their faith in him, will be changed. The power of sin will be broken. It has been broken and it will be broken in the life of anyone who believes. Christ's sacrifice is effectual. It works. He came to take away sins. And when you put your faith and trust in him, he will take away your sins. 
not just on the last day when he corruption puts on incorruption. He will take away your sins now. The promise was that everyone who believes in him will be sanctified and they will be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Christ's sacrifice works. He is going to cleanse the whole world. But he starts with his people. And this is what it, the, this passage is what it looks like to have an expectation that Christ's sacrifice works. Verses 19 through 22. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that he, which he consecrated for us, through the veil, that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So therefore, the point that the writer is making, or the point that he's about to make, is based on the point that he just finished making in verses 14 through 17. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us for after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. His sacrifice was to make people perfect. His sacrifice was to take away their sins. Which means that having faith in Him means you will be sanctified. He has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. You're made holy now. You don't, receive, you don't reach pure holiness. You don't reach sinlessness until Christ returns. But now you are being made holy. That is the promise of the efficacy of the blood of Christ. And it's not just the efficacy of his blood. It's, he sent his spirit to do that. He sent his spirit to make us a holy people. So therefore, there's responses that we should have. There's things that we should do. Because this is why Christ came. This is why he sent his spirit. The spirit that changes hearts. The spirit that changes minds. Because those who are saved are different. Their sins are being taken away. So because of that, brethren, those who are true brothers, he's saying it to all, but those who are true brothers, because God is working in them, because the Holy Spirit is working in them, they will do these things. And we should have a zeal to do these things. Having boldness. He'll have boldness. That, that word, that term boldness comes from two words that means all spoken. The idea is you're holding back nothing. You're holding back nothing. Frequently the word is translated confidence, that you go with confidence. You go trusting that you can approach God. Because of what Christ did, we can have the confidence to enter the holiest. Remember the Levitical priest. He would go in once a year for a short period of time. Before he did that, he had to kill a bull. He had to take two goats, and one became the scapegoat, and he had to slaughter the other goat. He had to do all these things so that he could bear Israel on his shoulders, their names, and on his breastplate into the holiest. 
Christ fulfilled that picture. When he was crucified and when he ascended up into heaven and he entered into the presence of God in the true tabernacle. The high priest, the Levitical high priest, he would have to burn incense and take that incense in and make sure that the mercy seat was covered so that he didn't die. The Levitical high priest could never boldly go into the holiest. Because to actually go into the holiest, your sins actually had to be dealt with. And now, God is commanding us to boldly go in. To go in having confidence. We don't have to have the same reticence that they did. We don't have to, their high priest was scared to go in. We're not supposed to be scared to go in. So it says the holiness, that's, that's a term for the in, inward sanctuary of the tabernacle or the temple where the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat resided. But he could have called it other names, but he calls it the holiness. Understand how now you go, you boldly go into the holiest. You boldly turn from sin now. It's not when you die that you boldly go into the holiness. That's not what the writer of Hebrews is saying. What the writer of Hebrews is saying, you boldly separate yourself from the world now. You boldly walk in holiness now. You walk in holiness with confidence that this is why Christ died. He died so that you could put away your sins. The emphasis is on the holiness of it. Do you have the faith to be holy? The high priest couldn't go into the presence of God without fear and trepidation because he knew he wasn't holy. He knew his sins weren't taken away. Now in Christ, our sins are taken away. We have power over sin. The power of sin in our life has been broken. We are slaves of righteousness, and as slaves of righteousness, we can boldly go into the holy place. We can boldly be holy. We can be holy by the blood of, Christ, of Jesus. The blood of bulls and goats could not take away sin. So those who were cleansed by that blood, they knew they still, all they still had was the fearful expectation of judgment. God says that he's atoned for them, but they know it's not an eternal atonement. They know it's very temporal, that it's going to pass away. But that's not how we're to look at it. We need to have the boldness to walk in holiness. Because we trust that the blood of Jesus Christ actually takes away sin. He didn't come just so that we could walk the same way. He didn't take on flesh. He didn't sacrifice. He wasn't mocked so that we could walk in the same way. He did all these things so that we could walk in righteousness, that we could walk in holiness. The sacrifice gives us power over sin. And that means that if we really believe that Christ's sacrifice is effectual, then we boldly turn from sin. We boldly walk in righteousness. We boldly do the things that we're supposed to do. We don't worry about the world. We don't have a fearful expectation that the world will, will blow up at us and destroy us. Instead, we say God is God and we boldly approach God. 
We need to speak with boldness. We need to act with confidence. We need to trust that God is sanctifying us to bring us into his presence. Jesus Christ bore us into his presence. Just like the high priest bore the stones. We can now go into the holiest of places. We can now have power over sin where before sin had power over them. That's not why Christ established the new covenant. He established the new covenant so that we could have power over sin. He does it by a new and living way. It's a new way, the previous way. And it wasn't just with the Levites. Abel sacrificed animals. Noah sacrificed animals. Abraham sacrificed animals. Jacob sacrificed animals. Moses sacrificed animals. And all that way, all that old way that was before Christ came, the way you approach God was to sacrifice animals. And none of it took away sins. It didn't make them holy. The holy sacrificed animals, but the animal sacrifice made no one holy. But now Christ has, through the crucifixion, by his going to the cross, God the Father sent Jesus Christ so that sins could be taken away, so that there is a way to actually go into the Holy of Holies. Abel sacrificed the animal, but that didn't mean that he could go by the cherubim that were in the Garden of Eden that were protecting it and driving it off. He couldn't go in. He couldn't go into that picture of the Holy of Holies. The sacrifice wasn't sufficient. It didn't work. It was a good thing to do. God judges Cain for not doing it, but it didn't work. But the sacrifice of Christ works. He's made a new way through the crucifixion of his son, through his rising from the dead. He's given a picture of the new way, a way that sanctifies, that makes men really holy. You have to die for yourself and walk in the newness of life. You have to have a new heart, a heart of flesh rather than a heart of stone. You have to have a mind that is not, that's not perverted by the law, but has the law written on it through the power of the Holy Spirit. Christ said a new way, a way that actually makes men holy, that actually, as it was promised in Jeremiah, that actually makes a people that can go into the presence of God. So receiving the gift of faith that sanctifies, continues to sanctify and will fully sanctify, that's the new way, not into the tabernacle but to actually be restored so that you can go into the presence of God. And it's not just a new way, it's also a living way. The reason that the old way didn't work is it was a bunch of dead animals. It was a dead way. It was a way that all it was was death. But Christ is not dead. He rose from the dead. He's alive. And He's ruling and reigning All authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. This isn't something that's far off. This is something that's active now. So the reason that we can enter in is Jesus Christ is reigning. He's alive. So it's completely different than the old way. The old way is you slaughter the bull and you burn it up and it's gone. Except for some ashes. The new way, Jesus Christ is alive. But I think even more importantly, 
God gives his living spirit to the people. It's a living way because it's not a way that we do by our strength, by our wisdom, by our power. It's a way that we can walk in. It's alive because the Holy Spirit is alive in his people. It's alive. He's alive in making us holy. He's alive in making us holy when we're saved, that he writes his law on our minds and on our hearts, but he's alive afterwards and he continues to sanctify. He continues to cleanse. He continues to cause us to walk in greater and greater holiness. The Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. He convicts us of sin. He guides us to truth. He reveals what Christ has said about things. It's a living way. We don't have to figure out, and and it's not like, When you go hiking and all you have is a topo map and you're trying to figure out where you are on the map, that's not what the Holy Spirit is like. He's showing you the way. It's a living way. It's like having a guide that takes you there. It's not just that you have to find it by yourself. But remember, it's the way into the holiest. It's the way to holiness is what it's talking about. That's what the Holy Spirit was sent for. which he consecrated, that word translated consecrated really means renewed. So just as Christ renewed, he reformed the baptisms and the feasts and all the ceremonial laws in the Old Testament. He also reformed the way into the holy place. He took what was that way with the blood of bulls and goats and he made it with his way. Only he renewed it and he made it effectual where before it was ineffectual. And he renewed it, he reformed it, he consecrated it for us. Also through the sacrifice of Christ renewed everything about how we approach God. The Levitical priest and the high priest only was the one who could approach God. He could only approach God once a year for a few minutes. But that's not what Christ did. When he consecrated the new and living way, he makes it so that we can boldly boldly enter into the holiest place. In Christ, all are priests on the order of Melchizedek. All have the authority to enter into the holiest of all. It's all been given through the authority of Christ to boldly approach God. When he consecrated the way, when he renewed the old way of bulls and goats, he now says, you're prepared. You're being prepared to enter into the presence of God. So the new way to the holiest wasn't just for the high priest. It was for all the it is now for all those who put their trust in Christ Jesus. Which means that we're to boldly be seeking to walk in holiness. Through the veil. Remember that veil, the veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place? It's described in Exodus twenty six, thirty one through thirty three. You shall make a veil woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and fine woven linen. It shall be woven with an artistic design of cherubim. You shall hang it upon the four pillars of acacia wood overlaid with gold. Their hooks shall be gold upon four sockets of silver, and you shall bring the veil from the clasps. Then you shall bring the ark of the testimony in there behind the veil. The veil shall be a divider for you between the holy place and the most holy place. That veil was the made of blue, purple, and scarlet. I think that's a picture of flesh. But the cherubim are interwoven in it, so it's this picture of 
of flesh in heaven. It's this picture of the connection between heaven and earth. The veil is a picture of the flesh of Jesus Christ, the perfectly holy one, that because he was holy and because he does the work to make us holy, because he actually defeated Satan, because he actually bound the strong man through his taking on flesh, he became the means, the, the, the way through to the holiest place. Because he took on flesh and became like us, because he ascended into heaven, because he's seated at the right hand of the Father, we no longer need to fear death. We no longer need to fear man. We no longer need to fear all these things that drive us from not walking as God would have us to walk. Sin doesn't have power over us anymore. We can walk in holiness. We can do it because he took on flesh and he became that connection. He became that thing that separates the holy place where God dwells in the holy place that's this picture of this earth where we're to walk in holiness because he, because he took on flesh right through the veil that is his flesh the writer wants us to make wants to make sure we understand that the picture that was in the tabernacle that separation you know, the means of, of crossing that separation was not going through these 15 feet tall, like by six inch thick, piece of slabs of acacia wood that were covered in gold. Nobody was getting through them. That is not how you get into heaven. There's only one way into heaven, and that is through the flesh. We look at the veil, and the veil is hiding it, but the veil is also the only way in. It's the only way to go through. The rest of it is, is this building that nobody could get through. The only way was through the veil, through his flesh. Without Christ taking on flesh, there's no access to the holiest of all. So we're to boldly enter in. And there's another reason that we're supposed to boldly enter in. It's because Christ is the high priest. We have a high priest. In addition to his blood making the way, in addition to him being the sacrifice, he's also the high priest. He's the veil that separates us, but he's the one that's in control of it. He's the one that's over the house of God. So we can have the boldness to enter into the holy place. We can have the boldness to walk in holiness because Christ made the way and he is the one that's the authority over all of it. He's the one that's the authority over the tabernacle. Whenever we say, yeah, God's word says that, but I can't do that. That will cause all kinds of trouble. Understand you're rejecting that Jesus Christ is over the house. You're rejecting that he has authority. How often in our walk do we reject these things that, that are clear in scripture? We have boldness to walk in holiness because Jesus Christ is in charge, do you see him as being in charge? Do you see him being in charge? Are you afraid of the world? Are you afraid of the things of the world? Are you afraid of men? He's over the house of God. He was appointed to be high priest. So he directs and he guides and he, he's the one that's in control of the house of God. 
And so we can boldly enter in. We can boldly walk in holiness. We can boldly eat from the table of showbread. We can eat the word of God. Because he's in charge. He became high priest so that he had authority. So let us draw near. Again, this is a call to pursue holiness. Draw near to God means to go where he is, to go into the holy place, to come to the holy of holies with a true heart. We have to, we have to draw near to God. God is completely separate from sin. He cannot bear to look on evil. The way you draw near to God is walking in righteousness and holiness. The way you draw near to God is by driving the sin and the desire for sin out of your heart. The Israelites, they didn't, they didn't draw near. They claimed to draw near, but they didn't draw near with the true heart. They had this whole ritual of worship that was given to them by God, but in their hearts, all they wanted to do was to please men, especially themselves. But we're commanded to actually draw near to God with a heart that loves Him. 1 John 5, 2 and 3 says, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome. This is what? This is what it looks like to draw near. This is what it looks like to draw near to God. It's to approach His holiness. It's to walk in His righteousness and His commandments. A true heart is one that loves God and the manifestation of a true heart is you walk in His commandments. Especially, especially when He says things that are contrary to what our flesh and the world says. A true heart is one that wants to submit to God. Let us draw near with a true heart. Do you have a true heart? A heart that wants to draw near to God. In full assurance of faith, that word translated assurance means to fully carry. It means to fully act on faith. The truer our heart, the more we act on faith rather than sight. The more we act based on what God says rather than what the world says. We're supposed to fully do what we say that we believe. That's to fully play out in our lives. That's what we're supposed to be striving for. That's how we make our calling and election sure. The way to have your calling election sure is to be fully seeking after God, to walk in the ways of God. Lots of people that struggle with assurance of salvation, but that's because the church does a terrible job of preaching holiness. If you want to have assurance of faith, turn from your sin. That's how you get assurance of faith. Turn from your sin and start walking in righteousness. And if you find you don't have the power to turn from your sin, you shouldn't have assurance of faith. Because Christ came to take away sin. supposed to fully walk in the ways of God and not the ways of the world. We don't do that by our own power. We do that through the sacrifice of Christ because Christ's sacrifice, His blood, is effectual to take away sins. Having our hearts. He's the one who deals with our hearts through the sending of the Holy Spirit. Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. 
this is the picture of the sacrifices, right? They would sprinkle the blood on things. They would sprinkle the blood around the altar burnt offering. They would create this separation from the holy and the profane through the sprinkling of blood. And that was all a picture about, this is what Christ's sacrifice did. He sprinkles our hearts from an evil conscience. He separates the holy from the profane. The blood of Jesus Christ is sprinkled on our hearts and our consciences are changed so that we become holy. We become separated from that picture of God's wrath. If you want to approach the holy place, you flee from the place of wrath. You move from the place of wrath towards the holy place. You turn from sin. But it starts with our conscience. He changes our mind about sin. He changes our understanding. In the fall, we still have the remnants enough to stand guilty before God. Because we know what we do, that we do things that we ought not to do. Everybody stands guilty before God. The person who lies once, he's guilty before God. He knows he shouldn't lie. But yet, Jesus Christ came so that our conscience could be, could be fixed. Because our conscience... We think of things that are, we think of things as good that aren't good. Are you renewing your mind? Are you, are, are you working to have your conscience cleansed through the Word of God? That's what the Word of God does. It shows the thoughts and intents of our heart. It makes us understand what God desires of us, what God commands us to. Our conscience can only be changed through the blood of Jesus Christ, but once he has written his law on our minds, we're supposed to then seek to understand his law. And then from that, from that our bodies are washed. It flows outward. From the fullness of the heart the mouth speaks, the Bible says, from what comes out of our heart, that's what drives what we do. So God purifies the heart and that should change the behavior. The old covenant purified the behavior which had nothing to do with changing the heart but God Jesus Christ in his sacrifice did the opposite he started from the inside so it would be manifested outwardly but this is what we're supposed to do this is how we draw near to God as we fix our conscience so that we understand what sin is and then we start to walk in righteousness and holiness Our bodies are washed with pure water. It's pure water, meaning it doesn't defile. It keeps cleansing. And we keep being cleansed. It's not like we wash with water that was already defiled, so we keep getting defiled. That's not what God does. Let us draw near by changing our understanding, by desiring what God desires, and then let it wash out, let it... Let the word of God and the law of God dictate our behavior. Not by twisting it, but by speaking truth. Verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Let us. It's another thing that we're supposed to do. This is another thing that we're being commanded to do. Because the high priest that we have, we're supposed to draw near to the, to the holiest. But the next thing is very related to it. We're supposed to hold fast. That's the, 
righteousness is not by dead works. We don't become enter into the holiest by the things that we do, thinking that our works can cleanse. The way we enter into the holiest is we hold fast to our faith. That word translated hold fast means is more like the, the picture of keeping the goal in mind. It's like when, I think it's Acts 27, where, where Paul's on the ship and they have the anchors that are holding the ship in, and it, it's about to wreck. And it's not about the anchors that they use to hold fast. It's that they say going to land is what they hold fast to. The target is what they're holding fast to. This is what we're supposed to do. We're not supposed to hold fast to some anchor and say, oh, yeah, you know, Christ will keep me. What we're supposed to do is actually hold fast by saying, that's where I'm going. That's where I'm headed to. That's what my life is about. Hold fast to the confession. Hold fast to the confession of our hope. That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to say, this is where my hope is. It's in eternal life. So I'm going to hold fast. I'm going to do that. I'm going to make that the focus of my life. But it says the confession, that word confession is homologia. Logia means like reason or word. And homo means same. The idea is that your life is the same as you, what you say. If you say your hope is in eternal life, are you living like it? If you say your hope is that you will be in the holy of holies, are you living like it now? That's what it means to hold fast. If you say, yes, my hope is in Christ, I hope to dwell with Him forever, and you have no desire for holiness in your life, it's a lie. You're a hypocrite. That's what He's saying. Make your confession the same as the reality of your life. If you say your hope is to be in the presence of God, He's holy. He's holy. He's holy. And so your response will be to say, I need to be holy now. I need to hold fast to that confession. I need to hold fast to what I want to be is in the holy of holies. And holding fast to that confession requires you to turn from sin. It requires you to seek to walk in righteousness and truth. If your hope is to be in the presence of God for eternity, and remember, for eternity, there's only two places you can be. You are either eternally in the presence of God or you are eternally out of the presence of God. Being eternally out of the presence of God is defined as hell. Utter darkness, utter pain, utter torment. But the key difference is you either want to be with God or you don't. If you don't want to be with God, you don't want holiness. And if you do want to be with God for eternity, you're seeking holiness now. And that's what the writer's saying. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope. If your hope is that you will be in the holy of holies, that you will be in the presence of God eternally. You'll keep that as your target to be holy. As Noel read in 1 Peter 1, it says, Be holy as I am holy. That's the response to having the hope that you will be in the presence of God for eternity, is that you will seek to be holy now. 
the opposite of being a hypocrite. It's opposite of being what the Pharisees did, where they said right and true things, but they turned around and none of it was true in their life. That's not what the blood, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is like. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ is he will take away sin now. He will cause you to walk in holiness now. And then it says without wavering. If your hope is in eternal life, if that's your focus, if that's where you're trying to go, if you're trying to be in the holy of holies with the Lord God, then you do it with consistency. I don't know how many people that I've, I've known over the years that they have this, they're in church and they're really holy and they're so, talking about holy words and then they go and live their life and their life has nothing to do with holiness. That is not what the writer of Hebrews is saying. He's saying that if you really have faith, if you really have hope, if you really have trust and belief that you will spend eternity in heaven rather than in hell, what you will do is you won't waver. You will seek holiness. You will work towards holiness. Or you will look for sin in your life and you will root it out and destroy it. And you'll do it consistently. You won't just do it when you're around other people. You won't just do it based on what, what the men around you are doing. That's... That's fearing man rather than fearing God. You won't use an excuse, well, everybody else in church is doing this, so even though I think it's against the word of God, I'm going to do it. No. That's the opposite of this. That's wavering. Do you walk by faith or do you walk by sight? Without wavering doesn't mean half the time you walk by sight and half the time you walk by faith. It means that you always walk by faith. And yes, we always fail at times. But is that your desire? Is that what you're working for? Is to have that focus, that idea of this is where I'm going. This is what I'm working for. This is my expectation. Because if you do, then it affects what you do now. So for he who promised, that word promise is like to announce. It was declared. It was declared through the perfection of the life of Christ. It was declared that no deceit was found in his mouth, that he did not sin in any way. There was no error in him. So he declared that through the perfection of the life of Christ, that first of all, the world would hate him. It crucified him. But through his crucifixion, it testifies to us. It's the promise that we're not to conform ourselves to the world. Through his ascension, it's the promise that we can go back into the presence of God. Christ's ministry was to show the way, the living way, the new way that we can be reconciled to the Father. But we need to trust it because he's faithful. He can be trusted. He doesn't waver, which is why we shouldn't waver, because he doesn't waver. He can always be trusted. Verses 24 and 25. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. Again, another thing that he's giving practical applications since Jesus Christ's blood allows us to go into the Holy of Holies because we're supposed to boldly go in there 
because he won't lose any that he saves, because he changes the heart and he changes the mind. Because of that, because he's the veil, we don't just worry about ourselves. We don't just make sure that we're doing the things that we should do, that we're holding fast the confession of our hope, but that we consider one another. We have an obligation to those who God has put us with to think about one another. That word consider means to observe fully. We're really supposed to be thinking about one another, not just in some passing way. Oh, I saw him sinning, so I'm going to confront him in the sin. That's not what this is saying. This is saying we're supposed to be considering one another and saying, how can we help one another draw near to the holiest of all? How can we help one another draw near to God? And you go, but, but they may not hear. Well, that's not trusting that the Holy Spirit actually save them. Because I've heard that so many times from people. They go, well, if I confront him, maybe he'll get upset. Well, if he gets upset, great. That means he doesn't know who God is. If he has the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit says, I am the new and living way. He will bring them to holiness. But it doesn't mean that he hasn't given us a responsibility. He has given us a responsibility. We're supposed to be considering our brothers and sisters Fully observing, saying, you know what? You could be doing this for the kingdom. Why aren't you? You know what? I see you at this in your life, and you seem to be walking pretty close to sin there, brother. You should really think about it. Do you consider those people who are around you that profess faith? Because that's what we're commanded. We're commanded to be our brother's keeper. Cain said, I'm not my brother. Am I my brother's keeper? Christians say, I'm my brother's keeper. We consider one another. In order we do it, we observe, not to try to catch them in sin, not for any purpose to make ourselves feel better, but because they've confessed Christ, because they say that this is where their hope is, we do it in order to help them move to the holiest, help them move to the holy of holies. We do this in order to stir up. That's a very strong word, praxism. The King James translates it provoke. When you know, the, the word that, uh, that Strong's translates it is like incite. Like when we think of inciting a riot, that's what we should be thinking of. That's kind of the word. That's a negative connotation of it, but it's like to actually cause things to happen. That's why we're supposed to really be thinking about one another so that we cause things to happen in their life. We're supposed to be the catalyst for each, each, we're supposed to be the catalyst so that each of us draw nearer to God, that each of us walk in greater holiness. We're supposed to actually push them. And not for our sakes, but for their sakes so that none are lost, so that they also seek after holiness, so that they also draw near to God, so that they also rest in their hope unwavering. And so the church as a whole is more of a picture of what God would have us to be. Homologia, those who say the same things that they do, the opposite of hypocrites. 
We're supposed to exhort one another. We're supposed to provoke so that we're a holy people. Remember Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, he says, you are an unleavened lump. The way we become an unleavened lump, like Christ made his church an unleavened lump, is we have to be willing to provoke one another. And not just to like annoy them, but in order to provoke them to love. We're supposed to be provoking one another to live sacrificially. To live esteeming others better than yourself. By sacrificing the things in this life. You're testifying and you're trusting in and you're putting your faith in the promises of eternal life. To those who seek to good, do good according to God's definition of good, that's, that's seeking to be drawn near to God. So we're to put, consider one another to push them to walk in the law of God. right? Because the law is summed up in love your neighbor as yourself. We're supposed to consider one another to stir up love. So as a church, the church is supposed to be known by its love for one another. Are you stirring up love or do you want to have the church not have a testimony? A testimony in the world. The reason the church has very little testimony in the world in America is we have very little testimony of loving one another. I know of churches that split because half the people said the pews should be blue and half said that they should be red. And the church goes, or the world goes, excuse me, I'm just like that. And they're right, they are just like that. So what can God do for them? When we provoke one another to stir up love, or we provoked people to love, then we're different than the world. And the church is to be different than the world. How do you have a testimony to the world if you're the same as the world? When we provoke one another to love, the glory of God is seen. So we're supposed to consider one another. This means to think about one another. Not just to do it if it happens to strike your fancy, but actually to sit down and think about it. And yes, as an elder, that's my job, but it's not just my job. This is being very explicit. This isn't like elders should be going to people and saying, have you ever thought you should be doing this? It's that you should be going to one another saying, have you ever thought I should be doing this or you should be doing this? That's how the church walks the way it's supposed to walk. We're to actually think about each other so that we can provoke with specificity that you can tell the person, this is how I think you're failing to love. Or this is the commandment that I see in your life. I see you walking in holiness in lots of ways, but I think you're ignoring this, brother. You need to go look at this verse and make sure you're applying this to your life. That's what we're supposed to be doing. That's what we're supposed to be doing out of love for one another. And out of love for Christ. So not just provoke to love, but also to good works. We're supposed to stir up to get people to work harder at loving. We're supposed to encourage people to spend and be spent. We're supposed to be encouraging other. You know, Paul says, I'm like a drink offering. I've been completely poured out. That's what we're supposed to be encouraging one another to. To be completely consumed for the work of God. To be completely fixed. To hold fast 
that destination of the Holy of Holies. And again, we're supposed to consider one another. We're supposed to really think about it. Not just do it superficially, but actually say to to ourselves, what could this person be doing for the kingdom of God that he's not doing? He says that this is my slave master. He says, Jesus Christ is my Lord. So it's like a faithful slave should say to another slave, why aren't, you, why aren't you working in that field like you should be? Why are you just sitting around? That's how we're supposed to think of the church. Is if we actually love our master, if we're actually trying to serve our master, you don't let the other slaves sit around and do nothing. Instead, you're supposed to be going, you know, here's some work that could be done. Why don't you go do that? Here's something that could be done to have more effect in the world around us. To cause God's glory, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord to be seen and to be understood. If you did this, that would further that. That's what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be provoking each other. To say, hey, you slay, you're a slave of God. Why aren't you doing this work? You could do this work. Why aren't you doing it? Sometimes it's because people need the rebuke. Sometimes, frequently, it's because people just don't see their opportunity. We need to be willing to point out to people their opportunities to serve God. Because that's what we're here for. That's why Christ saved us. That's why he redeemed us. He purchased us as slaves to serve righteousness instead of to serve sin. And then how do you do it? By not forsaking. Again, the writer is telling us the means and not just the ends. The means to be able to stir up love and good works means that you have to have time. You have to be assembled together. You have to, to, in order to understand what gifts people have, to order to understand what opportunities they have, in order to be able to provoke them to love and good works, you actually have to spend time with them. So when we forsake the assembling of ourselves together, and that word means to gather all at the same place. I've heard people say, oh yeah, I, I'm not forsaking the assembling of myself, or the assembling, the assembling of ourselves together. I, I meet with Christians. I have, you know, I, I meet with them. I talk to them. I'm, I'm going out with them. But they never, never gather with the church. This verse is not satisfied by that. This verse means all gather together. It's not just like you, you meet with Christians occasionally. This is a picture that there's supposed to be a day a week where the Christians gather together so that we can actually consider one another. We can actually say, what sins do our brother and sister need to turn from? And we can actually say, what work should they be doing? And then talk to them about it. This is about a full collection of the people. And just as now there's some that do it at that time, as is the matter of some, they forsake the assembling of themselves together. It's always been a problem that people who profess faith think they can stand alone, think they have no obligation to others. Paul writes about this a lot. He writes about this, how we're members of one another in 1 Corinthians 12. He writes about it in Romans 12. He writes about the obligation we have to one another. And here, the writer of Hebrews is saying, Don't avoid each other. There's a reason for the Sabbath day. The reason for the Sabbath day, and it's not just the Sabbath day, but it's the collection of all, which really only happens on the Sabbath day. 
The reason for the Sabbath day is to provoke one another to love and good works. Christ didn't die for me and he didn't die for you. He died for us. He died for his church. He didn't just die for individuals. He went to the cross to purchase his bride, the church. To forsake the church is to forsake Christ's bride. And then he goes back to the same thing. Don't forsake gathering, but, exhort, but exhorting one another. Provoking, exhorting. These are, the, you know, these are what we're supposed to be doing. The opposite of not assembling is to exhort. It's not just getting together. How many churches are there that people just get together and they never talk to each other except for maybe two minutes walking in? There's no consideration of one another. There's no saying, where are you really? What should you be turning from? What should you be turning towards? Which is what we're supposed to provoke towards. So the assembling of the, ourselves together is so that we have a time of exhortation. And not me to you, which is certainly I hope that my sermons are frequently exhortive. But it's one another. It's you to you. That's who's supposed to be exhorting. Not just the elder to the people but the people to the people. But exhorting another one, and so much more. This is not to decrease. This is to continue to increase. As you see, and I think this is an interesting thing, it's saying, as you see the day approaching, the greater vision that you have of Christ returning, the greater understanding, the greater maturity that you have in faith, the more your response is to exhort others. If you're declining and exhorting others, it means you're losing the plot. You're losing the vision that Christ is returning, that Christ is going to end the separation between God and man. The more you mature in Christ, the more you see the importance of that. And the more you see the importance of that, the more you exhort, the more you provoke. That's how it's supposed to work. And that day approaching, you know, could mean the day of Christ's return, which is probably why they capitalize it in the New King James. But even more importantly, it's the day of our death. The older we get, the more we should understand our obligation to exhort others. It's like the priests. At 50, they would retire, and their job then isn't to do all the sacrifices anymore. Their job is to direct and exhort and call on other people to do them. The closer the day of your death approaches, the closer you get to the point where your soul will be in heaven, the more zeal you should have to exhort one another. Let me give you some applications. Do we actually believe that the sacrifice of Christ is effective? where the blood of bulls and goats could not take away sin, do we actually believe that the blood of Jesus Christ does? Because there's real, tangible signs of actively believing that. If you truly believe that, if you truly believe his sacrifice is effectual, then you seek after holiness. You boldly seek after holiness. Because you know that Christ will produce this. This is what he came to do, to destroy the works of the devil. He will produce this. This is why he gave the Holy Spirit. He will produce it. 
and you believe and trust that he can do it. That's what it means to believe that his sacrifice is effectual. You believe that he will take away your sins. Do you work out your salvation with fear and trembling? Knowing that he will assure our hearts before him. He will cleanse our conscience. He will cleanse our actions. If we pursue God, he will give us assurance. Because we will see the effect in our lives. The old fast on hope. Do you keep that as your target? Do you keep as your target the hope that you will be with God eternally? That you will be in the Holy of Holies? Do you believe his sacrifice was, accept, was effectual and that you will receive eternal life? If you do, then you're working towards holiness now. Do you truly trust in the promises of God? In Romans 2, it talks about how he'll judge us according to our deeds. There will be those who are considered righteous because they're seeking eternal life. And there's those who will be con- condemned to hell because they sought the things of this world. He will judge us according to our deeds. Do you actually have faith that Christ came with the promise of eternal life? Because if you do, then you turn from sin now. If you believe his sacrifice was effective to cause you to be able to dwell in the presence of God for eternity, you believe that he's taking away sins now. And then you turn around and confront your brother in sin. You turn around and confront your brother where he's not doing work that he could be doing. You turn around and you respond by provoking them to love and good works. Christ is going to accomplish what he came and died to do. Are you living like you believe that? Another application. Do you have the boldness to be holy? That's what we're commanded to do. We're commanded to, to have the boldness to live holy and recognize the promise of Scripture is that all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So when you have the boldness to walk in holiness, understand it will produce persecution in the world. But where's your hope? Where's your trust? Where's your faith? Do you have the boldness to be holy even though you know it will cause you problems in this earth, in this world? Even though you know that the world will hate you because it hated Christ and it hates anyone who walks in holiness, do you still have the faith to be bold, to be holy? That's what the Holy Spirit gives to you. That's why he replaced the heart of stone with the heart of flesh. That's why he writes the law in our hearts and our mind. So we, by trusting in the promise of faith, we can walk in holiness. When everyone around you says you're a fool for doing that, you have the boldness to walk by faith instead of sight. Another application. The incarnation is really important. Without the incarnation, Christ could not be the veil. He could not be that thing that gives us access to the Holy of Holies. He could not be that separation from heaven and earth. Because other than that, it would just be like it had another wall of acacia wood that would be impossible to get through. But Christ is the veil. That veil in the tabernacle 
it was there to cover so that they did not die because they did not see the glory of God, but it was also so that they could go into the Holy of Holies. Christ is the veil because by his taking on flesh, it makes it possible for us to go into the Holy of Holies. He's able to intercede for us. He's able to act as the mediator all because he took on flesh and became that that bridge between God and man. Another application. Christ came in the flesh to be that point where heaven and earth meets. But it's important to understand what Christ does. He ends up causing heaven and earth to become one. That, that He's that picture of separation between the earth and the heavens. But he came so that they aren't separated. He came so that they all become one. Ephesians 1, 8 through 10, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, all in him. He's making it so that all of us have that heavenly and that earthly aspect, just like he does. He's the veil that joins heaven and earth and what he's doing now. The work that he's doing is unifying heaven and earth. He's making it one so that in the end there'll be a new heaven and earth, a new earth that won't be separate. They'll be together. There won't be this, this, this gulf that you can't go from one to the other. The new Jerusalem will descend and the, heaven and the new heavens and the new earth will all be one thing. The separation will be between those who walk in holiness and those who are out of God's presence for eternity came to establish the way, the connection between the two, so that he could destroy that separation. So that there would no longer be a separation, that all things in heaven and earth would be unified. Another application. Approaching God requires holiness. People talk about drawing near to God. They talk about drawing near to God as this emotional thing, or I'm drawing near to God through prayer. The way you draw near to God is through obedience doesn't mean that there isn't emotion involved if what you're doing is if your heart in the inward parts you want to rebel against God then don't think you're drawing near to him the Israelites drew near to God only with their lips Isaiah 29 13 therefore the Lord said inasmuch as these people draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips but have removed their hearts far from me and their fear toward me is taught by the commandment of men we're commanded to draw near to God in reality. Not by listening to the commands of man, but listening to the commands of God. That's how you draw near to God. They thought they could draw near to God with emotion. They thought they could draw near to God with, with just saying things with their mouth. The way you draw near to God is walking as God would walk. The way you draw near to Christ is being like Christ. That's how we do it. We... He's working in us to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. That's how you draw near to God. You turn from sin. It's not some emotional thing. The emotion's there, but it's more than that. Another application. Since God changed us from the inside out, 
He gives us a heart to understand that he writes that law in our heart. So our conscience stops being evil, excusing our sin. It becomes sharp at recognizing sin instead of evil. It becomes pure. So this is what we should be striving for. And you know the way that you strive for it? Read God's word. That's the way you cleanse your conscience. Is you read God's word. Because God's word reveals the thoughts and intents of the heart. God's word reveals the errors that you have. God's word is how your conscience becomes pure. And a pure conscience allows us to see sin. Work to have a pure conscience before God. Another application we need to remind ourselves. We need to do the work to remind ourselves. When we're in the moment, we need to remind ourselves we have to walk by faith and not by sight. Because it's easy to say it in the abstract. It's when you have the hard situations, when you have the difficult things, do you say, now I'm being tempted to walk in the flesh? Or do you say to yourself, I must walk by faith here. Yeah, this is the easy way out, but I'm not going to take the easy way out. I'm going to walk by faith here. That's what we have to be telling ourselves. We're in the the midst of that temptation. We're in the midst of that trial. We need to say to ourselves, at this point, what am I going to do? Am I going to hold fast to my confession? Am I going to say my hope is that I will be within the presence of God for eternity, so therefore I'll do what he says, or is my hope in this world and I won't? But if you don't think that way, if you don't have that in your mind, you'll end up doing the things of this world. We actually have to do the work to remind ourselves that we have to walk by faith. We have to keep our eyes fixed on the hope or the things of the world, the flesh, the world, and the devil will cause us to waver. Instead, we need to remember the promise of eternal life. We need to remember the goal. The goal is to be in the presence of God for eternity. Another application. A major reformation is needed in the church all over the world. The more it strikes me, the more places I've been, is that we really need to reform what people think it means when it says to assemble together. It's not listen to a guy preach a sermon and then get up and walk. Walk out and not have any communication. Walk out and not deal with one another. It doesn't hurt, but it's not good enough. Because it's not one man that's supposed to provoke the others. We're not, it's not, the elder is not the priest and the people are the laity. As priests, this is the duty that you have to provoke one another to love and good works. There must be a time, an opportunity in the gathering to consider, to actually get to know somebody well enough, to understand where they are so that you can provoke them, saying, why aren't you loving in this way? Why aren't you doing this good work? As long as the church just comes in and it's this meeting where you hear the preaching of the word and walk out, the church won't have any power. Because the power does come from brothers confronting other brothers Sisters confronting other sisters, the people in the church confronting one another, talking about one another and saying, why aren't you doing this? The church loses power in its society when the people in the church won't provoke one another. 
Provoke one another to greater holiness. Provoke one another to greater service to God. That needs to happen for the, for the church to have an impact on the world. Let's make sure we're doing it here. We know. We know this. This isn't like new stuff that I'm just saying now for the first time. As a congregation, we know we're supposed to provoke one another to love and good works. But are we actually doing that? Are we actually doing that? Then the last application. In this passage, the writer is describing the means that we're to approach heaven. Through the sacrifice of Christ, our hearts and our minds are changed. We then are to fight against our unbelief, walking by faith, doing what's contrary to what sight would tell us to do. And because of that faith, we cleanse our conscience. We see sin as sin. And through the cleansing of our conscience, our behavior then starts to be holy. When our behavior is holy, we provoke one another to greater holiness, to greater love, to greater good works. Are you working through this process? Are you walking in the living way? Because this is what the living way looks like. If you're not reading the word of God, then you don't have any desire for your conscience to be pure. You don't have any desire to grow. You don't have any desire to draw near to God. Do you actually want to have a pure conscience so you can have a pure body so that you can actually hold fast to the faith so that you can, you can be a faithful servant of God? God has a process by which we're to enter into the Holy of Holies. Do you want to see your sin or do you want to ignore your sin? Let me close this in prayer. Oh, Lord God, we do thank you for this passage. It is truly a rich passage, as Connor said. There's much here. Convict us of, the, of where we fall short. Convict us where we honor your word with our lips, but our hearts far from it. Things like exhorting one another to love and good works. Lord, convict us of where we're not living as a people who actually desire to be in your presence. Because you cannot bear to look on evil. If we want to draw near to you, we have to turn from sin. We have to be holy as you are holy. Lord, you are the holy God. The holy God. The holy God. Let us desire that holiness in our lives. As we prepare and as our hope is that we will enter into the Holy of Holies. We ask this in your son's name. Amen.